When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, hello again. I'm Nurse Mo, and this is the Straight A Nursing Podcast, where I teach concepts and share tips on how to thrive in nursing school and at the bedside. So for this week's topic, we are diving into the key questions that you probably have about pacemakers. And guess how I know that? Because I've had these exact same questions about pacemakers. And anytime I have a question about something or don't fully understand a concept or learned it in nursing school and then forgot it because I haven't used it. I love coming back, re-exploring that concept and then sharing it with you on the podcast. So that's what we're doing today where we're going through commonly asked questions about pacemakers. Now, before we jump into that, let's take a minute for our quick listener shout out. This one goes out to Honey who says, Nurse Mo's techniques for the win. Latte forms for everything. That way, each concept is on a latte single page versus studying randomness that may or may not be testable information. Then I talk out my latte forms and watch a YouTube video anywhere I get stuck. Then also practice with the buddy, talking it out, and also doing practice questions without having to review notes. So thank you, honey. I'm so glad that the latte framework has helped you really streamline how you study disease conditions. That's 1000% why I came up with it because when I was a nursing student, I was just going through pages and pages and pages of notes. And I realized very, very quickly, I do not have time for this. I need to streamline how I study. So I came up with the latte framework as a nursing student and I continue to use it to this day. I use it all the time on the podcast, as you know, and I just think it's a great way to get nursing students to really just hone in on the key information that they need to know. So thank you to Honey for taking the time to submit that feedback. So if you're wondering what Honey is talking about, about the latte form or the latte template, I have that available on my website. I will put a link to it in the episode notes. Or you can just go to my website, which is straightanursingstudent.com, and click on resources in that top menu bar. And that should take you to a page where you have some resources that you can choose from. And one of those is going to be the latte template. All right, who is ready to dive into pacemakers? So probably the first question that you might ask, especially if you're brand new, is what is a pacemaker? So when the heart rate is irregular or too slow, cardiac output is compromised. So a pacemaker is often utilized to support the heart's electrical system, stabilize arrhythmias, and ensure the heart pumps at a rate that supports tissue perfusion throughout the body. So I'll say that again. A pacemaker may be utilized to support the heart's electrical system, stabilize arrhythmias, and ensure the heart pumps at a rate that supports tissue perfusion throughout the body. Now, while there are different types of pacemakers, they all have a pulse generator and electrodes. The pulse generator provides electrical impulses, which are transmitted through the electrodes, causing cardiac muscle to get electrically stimulated. And what happens when cardiac muscle is electrically stimulated? It contracts. Once the pacemaker is placed, it is programmed to set the rate and other parameters, which we'll talk about in just a moment. So that was, what is a pacemaker? Next is a question you might have, which is, what are some common indications for a pacemaker? So a pacemaker may be indicated in patients with arrhythmias, such as sick sinus syndrome, also known as sinus node dysfunction, 
symptomatic bradycardia, or a high-degree heart block. Other indications include after a myocardial infarction, some patients with heart failure may have a pacemaker, patients with congenital heart defects, and temporarily, they're used after some cardiac surgeries. So if you've ever had a patient with a pacemaker or maybe you're in nursing school and you're studying and learning about pacemakers, you've probably noticed there's a lot of pacemaker terminology. So let's talk through some of the language of pacemakers. So the first thing to know about are pacing spikes. When that pacemaker generates an adequate electrical impulse, this shows on the ECG as a pacing spike. Now, it doesn't mean that everything is working as it should. You can have situations where you have pacing spikes, but no heart contracting after that. But just for now, understand that pacing spikes are going to show up on the ECG. And that means the pacemaker has generated an impulse. And that impulse has been strong enough to show up on the ECG as that pacing spike. And basically, it just looks like a vertical line on your ECG. Another term is output. The output is how much electrical current is produced with each pacemaker impulse. It is measured in milliampers or milliamps as we say, and that is abbreviated as a lowercase m and a capital A, so milliamps. You will increase the milliamps until the pacemaker achieves capture. So, what is capture, you might be asking? That is a great question. So capture refers to the pacemaker impulse being strong enough to cause electrical activity in the atrium or the ventricle. And that will depend on which chamber is being paced. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. Note that if the pacemaker is only pacing the ventricle, the QRS is going to show up as wider than normal. So when you have capture, again, the pacemaker impulse is causing electrical activity in the atrium or ventricle. So you will see that on the ECG. If it's causing it in the atrium, you'll see it with the P wave. If it's causing it with the ventricle, you'll see it with the QRS. And that pacing spike will be right before the P wave if we're pacing the atrium or right before the QRS if we're pacing the ventricle. And again, if we're only pacing the ventricles, the QRS will be wider than normal. This is expected in a patient with a pacemaker who is ventricular paced. And this is because it takes a little bit of time for the electrical activity to spread from the location of the lead to the entirety of the left ventricle. Remember like your electrophysiology highway, right? So when there's an electrical impulse in the heart, normally it's coming from the atrium down through, you know, the sinus node down through the AV node into the ventricle along those, what is it, the bundle of his and the Purkinje fibers and all of that. It's doing its normal pathway. We're not doing a normal pathway here. So it's going to take a little bit longer for that electrical activity to spread. And that causes the QRS to be a little bit wider. Now, if only the atrium is paced, again, you'll see that pacing spike followed by a P wave. And the P wave is generally the same size as it always is. And if the patient is dual paced, and don't worry, we'll talk about dual pacing and all of that in just a moment, you'll see a spike followed by a P wave and then a spike followed by a QRS complex. Okay, so capture refers to the pacemaker impulse causing electrical activity in the atrium or the ventricle. Again, that will depend on which chamber is being paced. Now, what about failure to capture? Have you heard this term before? So when this occurs, the pacemaker is firing. So you have that pacing spike, but it doesn't induce electrical activity in the heart chamber. And this is seen on the ECG as a pacing spike that is not followed by a P wave or a QRS as you would expect it to depending on which chamber is being paced. Now, the reason for this could be due to low output from the pacemaker. Maybe it's just not getting enough oomph out there. And this could be maybe because the battery is low or something like that. It could also be from inflammation in the cardiac tissue itself, especially where it is 
making connection with that electrode, or it could be because of lead dislodgement. So that is failure to capture. Again, you would have an electrical impulse generated by the pacemaker, but it's not going to cause an actual electrical stimulus in the heart that is going to cause the atria or the ventricle to contract. So you'll see a pacing spike, and it is not followed by a P wave or a QRS, again, depending on which chamber is being paced. And then we have something called mechanical capture. What does that mean? So it's not enough to have electrical capture on the ECG. And by electrical capture, I mean you've got the pacing spike and then you've got that P wave or QRS following. That's electrical capture. That's only part of the battle here. We also have to have mechanical capture, which means the heart is actually pumping strong enough to create good cardiac output and perfuse the tissues. So you can correlate your electrical capture with mechanical capture by palpating a radial pulse, for example, feeling for that actual pulse following that QRS. Or you could observe also the pulse rate via pulse oximetry, which is on the finger. So that's distal, that's showing that we're getting perfusion all the way to the extremities. Another term you may have a question about is sensing. And this is the ability of the pacemaker to sense the heart's intrinsic or naturally occurring activity. Now, sensitivity is basically correlated with the millivolts required to detect the patient's naturally occurring cardiac activity. The higher we have this setting on the pacemaker, the electrical activity of the heart, that intrinsic activity of the heart, has to be stronger at a higher millivolt, a higher current, a higher whatever. It has to be stronger in order for it to be detected by the pacemaker. So think of sensitivity as a fence. If you have a high fence, it's harder to see over it, right? Let's say you've got a fence between your yard and your neighbor's, and if you build that fence to be six feet tall, it's really hard to see over into your neighbor's yard to see what's going on over there. So that would be the millivolts, right? That would be high millivolts, hard to see what's going on in your neighbor's yard, hard for the pacemaker to sense the heart's intrinsic activity. So when that setting is turned up on that pacemaker control box, you are making the pacemaker less sensitive. So this is one that students and nurses and even experienced nurses struggle with because it's kind of opposite, right? When this setting is turned up, it makes the pacemaker less sensitive. So it is kind of an opposite. So think of it as a fence. When that fence is high, it's harder to see over it. The pacemaker is less sensitive. Now, the opposite is also true. On the other hand, when the millivolt setting is low, the pacemaker can sense the heart's natural or intrinsic electrical activity at lower levels. In this case, your fence between your house and your neighbor's house is only two feet tall, and you can see everything that's going on over there. In other words, the pacemaker is more sensitive. Okay, so that's sensitivity. Then we have failure to sense and oversensing. So let's first talk about failure to sense. So when this happens, the pacemaker is not recognizing the heart's natural or intrinsic electrical activity and mistakenly delivers an electrical impulse. So because it doesn't sense that the heart is managing things on its own, it thinks it needs help. So it's going to send an electrical impulse. You may see a pacing spike in the middle of a P wave or a QRS complex, or even on a T wave, and we definitely don't want that to happen. So again, failure to sense means that the pacemaker is going to be firing when it shouldn't. So another way to think of it is under sensing is over pacing, okay? And that's because the fence is just too low. Now, what about over sensing? In this instance, the pacemaker senses a signal that doesn't actually come from the heart. And when that happens, 
It thinks the heart's doing its own thing and that it's not needed. So pacing is inhibited. Interfering signals can come from faulty leads. They can be signals that are coming from other areas of the heart that are not being monitored by the pacemaker. And also electromagnetic interference from things like metal detectors, magnetic fields, electric fences, those fences that people put up for their pets, and even some medical alert devices. Now with over-sensing, no pacemaker spikes are seen on the ECG because the pacemaker thinks, oh, the heart's doing all kinds of cool stuff all on its own. It doesn't need me right now. I'm going to take a break. So what do you think happens? The patient is at risk for severe, severe bradycardia or even asystole if they are a patient who is 100% pacemaker dependent. So you can think of over-sensing as under-pacing. So again, failure to sense or under-sensing leads to over-pacing. So we're going to be firing off when it's not needed. And then over-sensing leads to under-pacing. And the patient is at risk for serious harm. Okay, so I know that was a lot. Take a minute. Let that all kind of absorb and soak into the sulci of your brain. And then we'll move on to talk about the different types of pacemakers. So there are several types of pacemakers, and they can be described based on whether they are temporary or permanent, how they are placed, their design, and their pacing characteristics. So first, let's talk about whether they're temporary or permanent. And then after that, we'll dive into pacemaker settings. So we have temporary pacemakers and permanent pacemakers. Temporary pacemakers are used short-term. That makes sense, right? And generally, they're used short-term until definitive treatment can be obtained. They may also be utilized after cardiac surgery when the heart is recovering. Now, there are a few different types of temporary pacemakers. There's transcutaneous, transvenous, epicardial, and transesophageal. So let's talk a little bit about each of these. First, looking at transcutaneous pacemakers. This is that traditional pacemaker that you would see in a code situation where the patient has the two big pads on their chest and we are transcutaneously pacing them. Remember that transcutaneous means we're going through the skin and that's what we're doing with this type of temporary pacemaker. Again, it's basically used in emergency situations. You're going to see it used by first responders. And again, when, you know, a code blue happens in the acute care setting. Note that transcutaneous pacing is painful. It's delivering electrical stimulation to the patient. So if you have the ability to sedate the patient, that might be a really kind thing to advocate for. Now, when using a transcutaneous pacemaker, the rate is generally set at around 80 beats per minute. This can vary based on your hospital policy and your protocols, but around 80 beats per minute in an adult at the lowest possible milliamp or that output setting. And then what you do is you slowly increase the milliamps and watch for those pacer spikes to appear on the ECG screen and then slowly increasing the output until you get that capture, that electrical capture, which is going to be showing as that QRS appearing after each spike, indicating, again, electrical capture. And then you slowly increase milliamps by an additional 10%. Some resources say some may have different levels. Basically, what you're doing is you're providing a safety margin for your patient. Now, again, this could be indicated by your facilities protocol. And you're only doing this if you've been trained in ACLS, Advanced Cardiac Life Support. And then once you have that electrical capture, you verify mechanical capture by doing what? You're going to feel for a pulse. And I like to feel at the periphery because you really want to make sure you're getting a strong heart contraction, good cardiac output. You can also observe the heart rate as obtained by pulse oximetry, what we call the pulse rate. All right, so that's a transcutaneous pacemaker used very temporarily in emergency situations. Then we have a transvenous pacemaker. 
Now, a transvenous pacemaker is the preferred temporary pacemaker for most situations and may be used for a longer duration than that transcutaneous pacemaker. A common indication for a transvenous pacemaker is in cases of endocarditis, where the patient is going to be getting a long course of antibiotics before they can have a surgical procedure to correct their cardiac dysfunction. So again, they would have a transvenous pacemaker for that time period. We don't want to be cutting into anybody's chest and messing around with their heart if they've got an infection in their heart. And basically, these patients are awaiting a permanent pacemaker. So as the name implies, a transvenous pacemaker is inserted venously, and this could be through the subclavian vein, the internal jugular, or the femoral vein. The pacer box itself is external and houses the generator and the controls. And the controls are going to be where the milliamps and the millivolts can be adjusted. Next, we have an epicardial pacemaker. So an epicardial pacemaker is placed during cardiac surgery and used temporarily to prevent post-operative arrhythmias. Leads may be attached to the ventricle, the atrium, or both chambers simultaneously. Note that with epicardial pacemakers, the leads will exit through the skin and the pacer box is also external. And I've seen this a lot of times. I have not worked with patients. For example, post-cabbage coronary artery bypass graft surgery, but as a nurse working in the medical ICU, occasionally I would have a reason to be down in the CVS ICU and I would see these patients with these epicardial pacemakers. And then transesophageal pacemaker. With this type of pacemaker, leads are inserted through the nose or the mouth and utilized for atrial pacing or as a diagnostic tool for atrial arrhythmias. And this is not very commonly used due to a lot of discomfort for the patient and not being very reliable. So again, those four key types of temporary pacemakers were transcutaneous, which is emergency only, transvenous, which is a longer term type of temporary pacemaker, epicardial, which is placed during cardiac surgery, and transesophageal, which is not very commonly used because it's really uncomfortable and it's not very reliable, especially, you know, when you compare it to the other types. So that was temporary pacemakers. Now, what about permanent pacemakers? Permanent pacemakers are utilized for long-term pacing and must be surgically implanted. They come in two general designs. Remember earlier I said sometimes pacemakers are defined by their design. In this case, you could have a traditional pacemaker with leads, and that's, you know, what you think of when you think of a permanent pacemaker most likely, but there's also a smaller version that does not use leads or a leadless pacemaker. So a traditional pacemaker is usually placed under the skin in the upper left chest, but in some cases may be implanted in the upper abdomen. The procedure definitely requires surgery and leaves a scar as well as a bit of a visible and palpable bulge. A leadless pacemaker is much, much smaller and attaches directly to the wall of the heart, so it is not visible. Rather than using a traditional surgical incision like you have with that permanent pacemaker, that more traditional site, it is inserted via a catheter that is advanced through the femoral vein or a jugular vein. Now, in both cases, a small computer called an external programmer communicates with the device so adjustments can be made without the need for additional surgery. So remember, with the temporary pacemaker, there were controls. There was a little control box that we could adjust. With a permanent pacemaker, it's done through this external programmer. Now, traditional pacemakers, the one that's in the upper left chest, for example, can have one to three wires that attach to the heart and deliver those electrical impulses. So with one wire, it just attaches to a single chamber. That makes perfect sense, right? And the cardiologist is going to choose if that needs to be the atrium or the ventricle. And this is basically a single chamber pacemaker. Now, what if there's two wires with your pacemaker? These attach to two chambers, one in the atrium and one in the ventricle. This is called a dual chamber pacemaker. And then some have three wires, two wires attached to the ventricles and one wire attached to the right atrium. 
This is called a biventricular pacemaker. Note that a leadless pacemaker, which is that one that is inserted through, for example, the femoral vein, is a single chamber pacemaker, but the patient may get two of them implanted to provide dual pacemaker functionality. All right, let's take a quick break here. Let all of that kind of absorb. And then when we come back, we'll dive into pacemaker settings. So take a deep breath and I'll see you in just a moment. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Now, the next question that nurses ask or nursing students ask about is, what do all these pacemaker settings mean? And I'm going to raise my hand here. I am guilty of this. When I started working in the recovery room, I I 100% had forgotten everything I had learned about pacemakers as a student and new grad nurse. So I had to review this as well. So don't feel bad if you think, oh, I should know this, but you don't. That's okay. If we're not using the information we learned in nursing school and to pass our NCLEX, that's simply because you're not using it every day. I promise you know a whole lot about whatever specialty you're working in. And if you're a student, it's okay to have all these questions. And that's why we're going through this together today. So there are a wide range of pacemaker settings, and they are described by using a five-position code. But... Not all five positions are always used. And if this is the case, it simply means that the final two positions, position four and five, are not utilized. So let's go through the five positions and what the codes are. So in position one, which will be the first letter in the code, this tells you which chamber of the heart is being paced. So the first letter tells you which chamber of the heart is being paced. And that could be an A for atrium, V for ventricle, or D for dual. That makes perfect sense, right? So position one, which chamber is being paced? Atrium, ventricle, or dual? A, V, or D. And then position two tells you which chambers are being sensed. Again, we have A, V, and D. So atrium, ventricle, or dual. But if the patient is not being sensed, then it would be the letter O in this position. O means no sensing. Now, you could see an S in this position initially. This is a designation used by the manufacturer to indicate the pacemaker is only able to pace a single chamber. So once it's inserted, the S should be changed to an A or a V in the patient's record, depending on if it's being sensed in the atrium or the ventricle, wherever that lead is attached. All right, position three tells you how the pacemaker responds when it senses an intrinsic event. And remember, an intrinsic event is the heart's naturally occurring electrical activity. So when the heart does its thing, what is the pacemaker going to do? The letter I means the pacemaker is inhibited. If it senses the heart is doing its thing, It's not going to do the pacemaker thing because it's going to say to itself, well, I'm not needed right now. The heart is doing okay with this particular beat. If it's the letter T, this means the pacemaker is triggered to provide stimulation. And if it's the letter D, we are in dual mode of response. And this is possible with dual chamber and biventricular pacemakers. 
So how that works is an event sensed in the atrium will inhibit atrial output or an impulse to the atrium, and it will trigger the ventricle to have a response. This occurs due to a programmatic delay that is set to mimic a normal PR interval. Note that if the pacemaker senses a ventricular event occurring, it will inhibit the ventricular event. So I'm going to say that again so that you can really understand it because it took me a while. I had to read it like five times to really understand it. So with dual response mode, if an event is sensed in the atrium, then the pacemaker is inhibited from sending an impulse to the atrium. Now, it will have a little bit of a programmatic delay, and it's going to wait and see if the ventricle responds. So if the pacemaker senses a ventricular event, then it's going to inhibit sending a response to the ventricle. But if it doesn't sense a ventricular event, it's going to go ahead and trigger the ventricle. And that delay means you've got kind of this normal PR interval. So that was D in position three. And then you could have an O for none, that there's no response when it senses an intrinsic event. So again, I for inhibited, T for triggering, D for dual modes of response, and O for none. Now what about position four? This tells you whether the pacer has rate modulation. R means the pacemaker does have rate modulation. And if this is the case, the rate of the pacemaker adjusts to respond to patient activity. We'll talk about rate in a little bit. And then O means rate modulation is unavailable for this pacemaker or it's disabled. So that is position four. And then position five tells you the location of multi-site pacing and is not often utilized. O would be there's no multi-site pacing. A means you've got multi-site pacing in one or both atria. And V means you've got it in one or both ventricles. And then D means dual in both atrium and ventricle. So that is the five position code. Again, position one, which chamber of the heart is being paced? Position two, which chambers are being sensed? Position three, what's the pacemaker going to do when it senses an intrinsic event? Position four, do we have rate modulation? And position five, do we have multi-site pacing? Again, most of the time, you're just going to see three letters, sometimes four letters. Pro I've never seen five letters used. I mostly see three and four letters. Now, another key pacemaker setting is the rate. Pacemakers in use today, so more contemporary pacemakers, sense the heart's intrinsic activity and send a stimulus only when the heart rate falls below the programmed pacing rate, which is often set at 60 beats per minute. In addition, most, if not all, we'll say most just in case there's some out there that don't do this, but most, if not all, contemporary pacemakers utilize that rate responsiveness, which enables the pacemaker to adjust the rate based on the patient's activity level or physiologic requirements. Many times you will see a pacemaker with settings that range from 60 to 100 beats per minute. Okay, so let's do just a quick little quiz here. Let's say your patient has a pacemaker with the settings DDD. What does this mean? So remember, position one is what chamber is being paced. If it's a D, we have dual pacing. If we have a D in the second position, that second position is which one is being sensed. In this case, dual chamber sensing. Both chambers are being sensed. And then the third position is how the pacemaker responds. In this case, we have a D, and that is going to be dual modes of response. And again, that was that type of response that can help mimic that normal PR interval. Okay, that was great. You did fabulous. I know it's hard when you're just listening and you don't have this written down. If you do want to see this in written format, I do have this all written on the Straight A Nursing website. There's a link in the episode notes to take you straight to that if you want to check it out later. Let's do AAI. That's your pacemaker settings. So A is the first position. That is what chamber is being paced. What do you think? That's the atrium. Good job. 
And then what's the second position tell us? It tells us which chamber is being sensed. And in this case, an AAI setting indicates the atrium is being sensed. And then I is for that third position. And it tells us what the pacemaker does when it senses an event. And what happens? If it's the letter I, we are inhibiting. If the pacemaker senses electrical activity in the atria, it is going to inhibit itself. It's not going to send a electrical stimulus to the heart. And then one more. What about VVI? So with VVI, position one is what chamber is being paced. Good job. If it's a V, we're pacing the ventricle. Second position is what chamber is being sensed. We have a V here. We're sensing the ventricle. And then the third position is what does the pacemaker do when it senses an intrinsic event? In this case, it's going to inhibit, meaning if it senses the ventricle is doing something, it's not going to fire because it's going to say, I'm not needed right now. The ventricle is doing just fine. Okay. Whew, this is a heavy episode. I hope you're doing okay. Take a breath. Take a break. Shake it out. Shake it out. We're going to move on now and talk about pacing modes, which we kind of already have, but let's just dive into pacing modes a little bit more. So pacing modes are individualized to each patient and take into account things like the patient's underlying arrhythmia, their medical history, their cardiac function, their response to exercise or activity or stress, and their general physical condition or health. Pacing modes utilize that five-position code that you just learned to describe how the pacemaker works for that individual patient. So single-chamber pacing is generally utilized in the ventricles in cases of symptomatic bradycardia. In this mode, the pacemaker can only sense and pace in one chamber. Remember, it's got one lead, so it can only attach in one place. We can only sense and pace in one chamber. Common single-chamber pacing modes are VOO, VVI, and AAI. So let's go through what these are. You're going to get a lot of practice with deciphering these pacing modes. So VOO. In this mode, the ventricle is paced. There's no sensing. And there's no response to the sensed event, which makes sense because sensing is turned off. So with this mode, the pacemaker is going to stimulate cardiac contraction at a programmed rate, basically, no matter what the heart is doing intrinsically. This is an asynchronous mode and is not generally used long-term. An example of VOO might be a patient who is pacemaker-dependent, who is undergoing an MRI. So signals in the MRI could confuse the pacemaker, making it think the heart has activity when it doesn't, by placing the pacemaker in that VOO mode, the patient's heart will continue to be at a programmed rate throughout the procedure. It's not going to sense electrical activity from the MRI That's and think it's heart activity because if that happened, it would be inhibited and not fire and the patient could have severe bradycardia or even asystole during their MRI. So we put it into VOO mode and the patient gets a programmed heart rate throughout the procedure. So not used long-term. VVI is another mode that I mentioned. In this mode, the pacemaker is pacing what chamber? The ventricle. What chamber is it sensing? The ventricle. And the third letter was an I. So it will not fire if it senses a ventricular event or a ventricular contraction. Essentially, it senses a heartbeat and withholds pacing when pacing is not needed. And then AAI. In this mode, what is the pacemaker pacing? The atrium. Very good. What is it sensing? The atrium. Very good. And what happens if it senses an atrial beat? It's inhibited. It's not going to send electrical activity to the atrium because it's going to say, the atrium is doing just fine. I'm not needed right now. So that was single chamber pacing. Now, dual chamber pacing modes most closely resemble the heart's normal physiologic activity and maintain that atrial ventricular synchrony. 
common dual chamber pacing modes are DDD and DDI. Doesn't mean you won't see other ones, but these are the common ones or the most common ones. So let's look at DDD. In this mode, the pacemaker is able to pace both the atrium and the ventricle, so dual paced. It senses atrial activity and ventricular activity, so dual sensing. And it has dual modes of response, so it inhibits or triggers based on what the patient needs. And then DDI. In this mode, the pacemaker is able to pace, which ones? Both the atrium and the ventricle, very good, we're dual. The second letter was a D, so it's sensing both atrial activity and ventricular activity. And when atrial activity is sensed, the pacemaker is inhibited and will not fire. Ideally, the atrial activity is followed by a normal conduction to the ventricle and ventricular contraction. However, if there's an AV block, the pacemaker will sense that the ventricle did not have activity and this will trigger an impulse to the ventricle at a programmed rate. So DDD and DDI, really common dual chamber pacing modes. All right, so the last question you might have or the next to last question you might have is, how do I troubleshoot some common temporary pacemaker problems? So the key problems with pacemakers are issues with sensing, with output, and with capture. If the patient has a permanent pacemaker, the settings will need to be adjusted using that external programmer that communicates with the device. This is typically done by the cardiologist. It could potentially be done by a tech who is, you know, like an electrophysiology tech. However, if the patient has a temporary pacemaker, you have a bit more control over troubleshooting as a nurse, provided it is A, covered by your scope of practice, B, covered by the training that you have received, and C, covered by your hospital policy, and D, covered by your physician orders or standing orders or protocols, okay? So just because you might know how to do these things doesn't mean that you can do them. So with all things, always check your policies. So one of the key problems is failure to pace. If the patient's heart rate is lower than the programmed rate of the pacemaker. So for example, let's say you know the pacemaker is set at 60 beats per minute on the low end and the patient's heart rate is 48 beats per minute. Clearly something going on here, right? We're not pacing at 60 beats per minute, which should be the lowest rate you see on your heart monitor. So your patient's heart rate is lower than you expect it to be and you don't see any pacing spikes on the ECG, this may be a problem with the device's output causing a failure to pace. So some common causes include loose connections or disconnections. So a simple thing to do is check that all your connections are secure. Another problem could be a battery failure or a very low battery. So it just doesn't have enough oomph so that it can do what it needs to do. So you want to first make sure, make sure it's on, just make sure the device is on and that the indicator lights are flashing. And if they're not, or if there's a low battery kind of uh, indicator with your particular device, then that battery may need to be changed. Note that most pacemaker generators will continue to work for a few seconds when you remove the old battery, but you still have to be very quick. This is definitely a situation where you have to make sure you're covered by policy, covered by orders, covered by all the covered buys, because it's kind of scary to take the battery out of the pacemaker, okay? So triple check on that before you touch a battery with the pacemaker. And then it could also be from over-sensing. If the pacemaker is over-sensing, remember, what happens? The fence is way too low and it's seeing everything going on in your patient's yard. If the fence is too low, it could be sensing things that are not intrinsic heart activity, but the pacemaker doesn't know that. It thinks it is. So if that pacemaker is over-sensing, it is too sensitive. And what do you do to rectify that? You build a taller fence, and you do that by increasing the millivolts on that sensitivity setting to make the device less sensitive. Again, only if it's covered by your hospital policy and your training and all of that. 
And then another reason is lead failure, that we could have failure to pace. The patient may need a chest x-ray to ensure the leads are in the correct position. If the leads are damaged, new leads may need to be inserted. And of course, this is a job for the cardiologist. But, you know, advocating for that chest x-ray, that could be something that you could do. Another problem with a temporary pacemaker is failure to capture. So you look at your ECG and it shows pacing spikes, but they're not followed by a P wave or a QRS. Again, which type of wave it is depends on which chamber is being paced for what you would expect to see. So if this occurs, you may have a problem with capture. This occurs when the pacemaker impulse does not cause that cardiac muscle to depolarize. So if your patient has no underlying rhythm or a very slow underlying rhythm, you need to be prepared for bad things to happen. You may need to provide transcutaneous pacing or CPR if needed. Common causes of failure to capture include loose connections. So again, always checking that your connections are secure. It could be due to low output. So as I talked about earlier, these temporary pacemakers have a little external controller. Well, guess who can get their hands on an external controller? A patient, a family member. So make sure that the settings have not changed. There should be a little plastic cover that goes over it. I don't know, maybe someone in a, you know, confused took the cover off. Who knows? But just check that the settings are what they are supposed to be. And then if that's not the case, one option is to increase the milliamp setting slowly and according to orders or protocol until capture is obtained. So milliamps is going to be associated with the output of the pacemaker. Another reason for failure to capture is elevated myocardial pacing threshold. So some factors that influence the pacing threshold include the patient's level of activity and the use of antiarrhythmic medications such as procanamide. Let the MD know as output may need to be increased and they may want to look at the medications the patient is getting, et cetera. And that would be because elevated myocardial pacing threshold means it's going to require more power in order to get that cardiac tissue to depolarize. And then another reason for failure to capture is wire migration or lead failure. Again, that chest x-ray can help the cardiologist see if the leads have migrated or are damaged and need to be replaced. And then failure to sense. So when the pacemaker does not sense the heart's intrinsic electrical activity, it's going to deliver impulses when they're not actually needed. And remember, why does this happen? It happens because the fence is too high. You have no idea what's going on in your neighbor's yard. And really, the pacemaker has no idea what's going on with the heart. So if the heart has intrinsic activity, pacemaker doesn't know this is happening. So it's going to deliver impulses when they're not actually needed. Remember, under sensing leads to over pacing. And scary thought, but if that impulse lands on the T wave, this can cause R on T phenomenon which can lead to ventricular fibrillation. We definitely don't want that. So failure to sense can occur for a few different reasons. One of those is because the sensitivity setting is too low. To combat this, we want to increase the sensitivity by lowering the fence. We do this by turning the millivolt setting down. Remember, when we lower the fence, we make the pacemaker more sensitive. Another reason is low battery, so it may need a battery change. And then there could also be interfering factors. So removing items from the vicinity is a good idea. Removing items that could be interfering with pacemaker function. So that could be cell phones. That could be other equipment in the room. So unplugging items in the vicinity one by one, if it is safe to do so, could help you see if there's any interference coming from other electrical devices. Note that with all of this troubleshooting, if your interventions are not successful and pretty darn quickly successful, you need to let the cardiologist know immediately, okay? All right, final question that you might have about pacemakers. 
is kind of pacemaker associated, pacemaker tangent. You might be wondering, what is an ICD? So an ICD is an implantable cardioverter defibrillator, which is a device that detects lethal arrhythmias and delivers a high energy shock to stop the arrhythmia and prevent death. Generally, ICDs just perform this one function, though some newer models can also provide lower energy pacing impulses if that's what the patient needs. So I'm not going to go into a whole thing about ICDs right now. You've learned a ton today. We reviewed a lot about pacemakers. We'll cover ICDs in a separate episode. So couple ways that you can make sure you don't miss that when it comes out is one, you can subscribe or follow the show on your favorite podcast player. Another way is to sign up for my A-list newsletter. I send a newsletter every Thursday. You can also, after you sign up and get the first one, opt to just get that monthly. If you're like, I don't need to hear from Nurse Mo every Thursday, once a month is fine. You can also do that. So in this newsletter, I share recent episodes, what I've been talking about on the podcast. I also recommend a couple other things that you might be interested in based on whatever, you know, the current episode is. I share a tip of the week, some product recommendations for things that make my nurse life easier, and any updates and things that are happening at Straight A Nursing. So the link is in the episode notes, so you can sign up for the A-list newsletter And then you'll never miss any of the goings on here at Straight A Nursing. So I will see you back here next week. And what are we talking about next week? We're going to be talking about local anesthetic systemic toxicity. So diving into pharmacology next week, I will see you back here for that. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing, a proud member of the Airwave Media Network. For more educational podcasts, check out airwavemedia.com. And for more nursing-related content, go to straightanursingstudent.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long.